Okay, best behavior now. Okay, now we gotta behave. Now we gotta, now it's on the record. <laughs> we are on page 534. We're continuing chapter 42. We are discussing our reverence for God, how to develop reverence for God, a genuine feeling of reverence. There's different levels of reverence. Um, we're referring to the most basic level of reverence, which is just a basic awareness of God's presence, a basic awareness that God cares, a basic awareness that we matter to. And the more we are aware of that, um, the more control we would be of our behavior. We started the chapter with, with quoting a verse in Deuteronomy. Moses was telling the Jewish people, he said, come on, guys, what am I asking for, from you already? <laughs> All I'm asking is that you revere God. Come on. And the Talmud comments, well, wait a minute. He makes it sound like such a low expectation, but that's a very high expectation. Reverend, a genuine reverence for God? How, <laughs> if we're being honest with ourselves, how easy is it for us to feel a genuine reverence for God? Why is Moses making it sound so easy? So we said, well, the reason is because for Moses, it was easy. That's what the Talmud said. And the Tanya challenges that Talmud and says, well, wait a minute. Do I look like Moses? <laughs> There's something a little off here. The answer is yes. Because we each have a piece of Moses within ourselves. And if we can access the Moses within, we can feel a genuine reverence for God. When we say Moses within, by the way, that's code word. That's Kabbalistic code word for the soul trait of Da'at. Who remembers Da'at or Da'as? Yeah. Da'as literally means knowledge. Knowledge. Right? But not mm -hmm. just knowledge of God. It's, it's more than just knowledge. It's not the acquisition of knowledge. It's the relevance of knowledge. If you can make knowledge relevant, you have Da'as. Right? Um, not just information. So if, if you were to understand how um, healthy Diet Coke is for you, we all know it's healthy, right? <clears throat> if you were to understand how beneficial Diet Coke is for you, it's tastes good, it's caffeine, right? But you don't actually drink the Diet Coke. So you don't have Da'as. You don't have knowledge, you have information. But if you actually drink the Diet Coke and enjoy it, you don't just have, because of that information, you don't just have information, you have Da'as. You have a connection to that, to, to that uh, a relationship with that information. That's Da'as. Da'as means not just that God exists. Da'as means God is relevant. So in this example, Josh, uh, you, you, you lack Das that Coke Zero is where you should be imbibing from. You know, <laughs> but you're not implementing this knowledge. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, exactly. I, in, in that, <laughs> I love it. In, in that case, I have the information, but I don't have the connection to the information. In other words, the information, unfortunately, at this point is irrelevant to me, right? Um, real faith, by the way, that's why real faith is not just God exists. I know that God exists. It means that God is relevant to my existence. 
and I believe my existence is relevant to his existence. That's that's real das. In, in other words, I don't just understand Judaism. Judaism is meaningful. Right? Meaningful is a code word for das because it's internalized. And we said there are two. Now, da'as is quite natural because it's ingrained in our soul. To make Judaism meaningful is a very natural part of our existence. It's a part of our soul DNA. It's in us. Judaism, God, our relationship with the Torah and its mitzvahs can be very meaningful, innately meaningful, I should say. Which means there are times where I don't understand all the beautiful explanations necessarily, but I just love it. Because it's a part of who I am. That's Da'as. But don't forget, we are still human. We still have a, a, a body, a, a corporal body, a physical body. We still have an animal soul. We still have pull, a pull toward other directions. Which means, although we potentially have Da'as, how aware of we are, uh, uh, are we of this Da'as? Right? How aware of we are... Uh, tongue twister. How... Who could help me out here? <laughs> how aware are we there we go of this das. it's been a while how aware are we so the I, i'm just just recapping here the altar i had two suggestions we need to do two things when you're having trouble igniting a, a flame you need more fire and you need a more receptive wick. So we need to be more, we need more soul. We need to do things that make our soul more comfortable. And we need to push our body out of its comfort zone a little bit. Yigiyat nefesh, exerting the soul to try to connect to the soul more. And also removing whatever's obstructing that connection, which is being more body oriented. And those two processes of meditation orienting ourselves our minds on what makes our soul comfortable and reminding ourselves that our body is simply just the uh the the, the reciprocal of something much deeper in life the body's not the, the the focal point of our existence right and and really internalizing that will help us better connect to da'as At some point, says, said the, the author, we really need a search. If we want to experience a genuine reverence for God, we need a search. We need to really search deep within. Search for God, search for the soul, search deep within. If you know there's a treasure buried in the earth, and you more or less know where it is, you might not know exactly where it is, but more or less you know where that treasure is. You're given a shovel. What are you going to do? You're going to dig, right? Yeah. You know the treasure's there. All you got to do is dig. Okay, you have a treasure within you. We have a treasure within ourselves. We want Judaism to be meaningful. We want our relationship with God to be relevant, aka to translate into reverence so we can experience his presence and make our observance meaningful. Okay, we just got to dig. We just got to dig. It's very difficult, but we can do it. And by the way, we need to dig properly. 
we mentioned this story last time, but I love it. Um, somebody asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe, what is the job of a Jewish leader? So the Rebbe told him, a Jewish leader is like an, uh, an archaeologist. Archaeologists dig. Well, the truth is anybody can dig. <laughs> but if you don't know how to dig, if you don't know where to dig, you're not going to come up with artifacts. You're going to come up with dirt. Right? And the Rebbe told him, you have many people that know how to dig, but they don't know where to dig. You have Freud. This is what the Rebbe told him. You have Sigmund Freud knew how to dig and he would come up with dirt, right? The essence of all people are, are self-centeredness and, and pleasure-seeking. Adler, all these Jewish psychologists, knew how to dig. Didn't know where to dig. He would come up with dirt. The Lubavitcher Rebbe knew how to dig and knew where to dig because when people met the Rebbe, they didn't come out feeling, uh, um, discovering the dirt that they had. We all know we have dirt, but they, they discovered deep, a deep artifact, a deep sense of soul. If we dig deeply, we will find it. And if we dig and we find dirt, we got to dig deeper. We got to deep digger, dig deep, dig deeper. There we go. We got to dig deeper. Deep digger. Deep digger. There we go. <laughs> now, what happens often in Judaism? or in life, I should say, is we get inspired. And inspiration is beautiful. But it's so important to translate that inspiration into action, which means, let's say we dig deeply. And I pray, and I, I orient myself, and I'm doing everything, and I experience a true, uh, a meaningful appreciation of how present God is in my life and how I ought to really uh, follow his ways. That's a beautiful feeling. I didn't accomplish my goal. <laughs> That's not the point. The feeling makes the observance meaningful. The feeling is not the observance. The feeling is not the relationship. The feeling is what makes the relationship meaningful. Take a look on the bottom of 534. I think we're caught up to where we left off, right? More or less. Bottom of 534, the last paragraph. Only in order for the dormant feelings to motivate action, that's the bottom line, at a minimal level of reverence uh, necessary to not sin, so that you turn away from evil in action, speech, and thought, top of 535, you need to bring out manifestly those latent and tangible feelings from the depths of your understandings of the heart, which transcends time. There's a part of us which is which timelessly uh, uh, appreciates God. And we need to actually um, become aware of that, make them conscious. If not as palpable feelings in the heart, then at least tangible in your thought and brain. And here's the actual, right? We need to become aware, consciously aware of all this beautiful philosophy that we're learning. And then you need to ponder these ideas deeply in conscious thought for a substantive period of time until the potential produces actual result, namely turn away from bad to good, thought, speech, and action. Take a moment and think. That's really what he's telling us to do. This is very, uh, this is Kabbalistic lingo for think. <laughs> it's so important to think, to think about our relationship with God. 
um, to think how relevant, especially when we don't see God, by the way, in a, in a, um, any normal relationship, you see the, the person you're having a relationship with, it's so much easier to experience them. It's so much easier to appreciate them. We don't necessarily see God directly. We see what he does for us. But thinking about how relevant he is will give us feelings. Uh, take a look at the, the next paragraph on 535. It's the middle of the page because he tells us exactly what we should ponder. At this very basic level, you're motivated not out of profound reverence of and feeling for God, but merely because God watches, sees, and hears, and is attentive to and understands all of your deeds. And he's checking your inclinations in your hearts. Think about for a moment. And by the way, let's try this right now. Close your eyes for a moment. Or if you want to close your eyes, you don't have to close your eyes, but close your eyes for a moment. And think that God is standing right there watching you. I don't even know what he looks like, but I know he's watching me. I can't know what he looks like, what he looks like. He's imageless. Um, but I know he's watching me. And he's watching what I do. He's listening to what I say. He's observing how I think. Goes a little bit deeper than that. He knows what I'm passionate about, what I care about, what I choose to care about, what I choose to not care about. All of these things are so relevant to God. All of these things are very relevant to him. And the more we drill that into our mind, that my thought, speech, action, my attitudes, my feelings, what I choose to care about, what I choose to not care about, all of these things matter to God. It, it, it's incredible. It, that, that's really supposed to, to inspire us. Um, the sages, uh, you'll recognize this from chapter, from Ethics of Our Fathers, from Pirkei Avot, our sages said, consider three things and you won't come to sin. Right, there's an eye that sees and ear that hears, and everything's recorded in a book. That's exactly that's essentially what we're saying. God is relevant. In the in the beginning of the Ten Commandments, which was the only time, by the way, in history where God personally revealed Himself to the Jewish people. Hopefully, we'll have that soon when Mashiach comes. Right. Um, but it starts, it starts with us getting, getting ready for it. It was the only time in history where God revealed himself to a multitude of people. And what is the first thing God said? Here are the 15 commandments. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what is the first thing that... <laughs> Sorry, I cracked myself up. But what is the first thing that God said? I am the Lord, your God. In English, when you're talking to an individual or you're talking to a, a group of people, you say your. But in Hebrew, if you're, there's a plural version of your, there's a singular per version of yours. If you're talking to many people, you'll say the plural version of your. If you're talking to one person, you'll say the singular version of your. And God says, I'm the Lord, your God. He says the singular version. 
God is talking to 3 million Jewish people at Sinai. Well, probably more than 3 million, but, but if you were to round it, if you were to square the number off, 3 million Jewish people at Sinai, and God says, I'm the Lord, you are God, you as an individual. Because he knows what each person is thinking, but not only knows what each person is thinking, feeling, uh, doing, saying, he cares. He cares. If we, at the end of our prayers, by the way, could come away with that feeling, that's kind of the structure of prayers to get us that, to that frame of mind that God is relevant. And what would indicate that God is relevant? Action. What indicates that God is relevant to you is action. If you did a mitzvah today, it's because you know that God is relevant. If you feel that God is relevant but didn't do a mitzvah because of it, then you felt that God was relevant. But was God really relevant? What would indicate that God is relevant is action, right? And th the truth is, uh, this is a really healthy model for any relationship. A marital relationship, a, um, a business relationship. How do you know your client's relevant to you? Do you really care about your client? Do you really care about your spouse? Do you really care about your friend? What would indicate that? Action. Action is the, is the confirmation that the relevance is, is, is genuine. What gets me to that point is the perspective. And how do I get that perspective? I use my mind. I reorient the way my, my I reorient my thinking. I realign my way of thinking with how God guides us through the Torah. Not just with what is convenient, but, but with what the Torah says. Now, there, there's a, this is a little bit of a technical issue, but, it, but it's an important issue. How could I believe that God hears me and God is observing me and God is listening to me and everything's being written down in a book that would suggest that God is human or at least has human traits? Um, and he addresses this issue in our chapter on page 536. It, it's a fascinating concept. As Jews, the, the Torah clearly tells us that God is imageless. Um, you know, God kind of has what's called an occupational hazard. Um, by the way, rabbis have that also. If you're too cool as a rabbi, well, who needs you? <laughs> what am I going to learn from you? And if you're not cool enough, how am I going to relate to you, right? Um, teachers have that. God has that. God has an occupational hazard. If he's too relatable, well, then he's just another human. What do I need him for? And if he's too unrelatable, he's, he's irrelevant. 
So what is God? We put God in this weird, how are we supposed to conceptualize God? God is imageless, right? Yet we say he hears us. And how is that possible if God is imageless? And the answer is, um, take a look on 536, the first bold paragraph on the page under section three. While God's seeing eye and hearing ear are metaphorical since God has no semblance of a body, that doesn't mean that God isn't really watching you, but to the contrary. The fact that he doesn't use actual eyes or ears means that his awareness of you is greater. Think about it. When do you need your eyes when something's, um, or ears, when you want to perceive something external? But if you wanted to perceive something internal, do you need your eyes or ears? No, you just need your brain. Just need your brain, right? So when, when you, uh, you know, you have, because we have nerves, if you were to stub your toe, you don't need to look at your toe and go, ow. You know that you hurt your toe, right? And if I were to measure it, if I were to use the um, observe, observational tools, my eyes or somehow scientifically measure the degree of pain that you should be feeling and say, you shouldn't, you shouldn't scream that loud. You would say, Josh, stop being ridiculous. I know what it feels like. <laughs> I felt it. You might've seen it, but I felt it, right? And that's what God is basically, um, that's God's perception of us. Everything is known and revealed before him because he really um, is the creator of everything. Everything is really part and parcel with him. We mentioned in earlier chapters that God is really the sole existence of, of the, the sole being of existence because everything's an extension of him. Everything is a, a part of him. So God doesn't even need to hear us. We're a part of him. Right, everything is just a piece of him. Now that's his perspective. From our perspective, we we spoke about the concept of symptom of God hiding himself and making the world seem independent. But from his perspective, just by being aware of himself, he knows us intimately. And that's going to be a much deeper appreciation of us that he has, uh, uh, awareness of us that he has, were he just to use observational tools such as sight or sound that we use. Make sense? In fact, take a look on the bottom of 537. All the way in the bottom. It's the last paragraph on the page. The Rambam, Maimonides writes, and the Kabbalists um, actually concurred as stated by Rabbi Moshe Cardavero in part of this Ramonim. Take a look at the top of 538. Maimonides generally um, was perceived as a philosopher and he would often clash with Kabbalists in terms of how they would uh, conceive or perceive Judaism, how they would conceptualize Judaism. And the reason why they would clash is because the perspective of philosophy is and the perspective of Kabbalah are, are very different. And they would often clash um, until later in Maimonides' years, 
more toward the end of his life where he would actually where he where it's known that he actually studied kabbalah but he didn't apparently in the beginning of his life but nevertheless um they would they would unanimously uh, agree top of 538 that from knowing himself so to speak god knows all creations since everything that exists in the heavens and the earth and everything in between only exists from the truth of his existence if he's the sole uh if he is the sole beginning of everything in existence we're doing the transfer here hold on one second as we uh we have this commercial break <laughs> john erase that from the record no i'm kidding <laughs> uh, are, are you having to switch to the meeting now no no we got we got a few more minutes um if god is the if god is the only um think about it this way if you need if there was one word to describe god you know what it would be now no word can really describe god god is beyond description but if there were one word i had to choose my life depended on it um the word i would choose is dependent That's an interesting choice. Of we dependent on him. Exactly. We're, we're, he is the only thing that is truly, sorry, independent. Ah, okay. Thank you. I, I can get fired for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, wait a minute. Yeah. That's a big 180. Um, yeah, it's a big 180. Um, if there was one word to describe him, I would say independent. Because he really is the only thing that's independent. He essentially exists. He doesn't need anything to exist. Everything needs him to exist. Everything only exists from his divine energy. It's all a piece of him. Literally, all he needs to do is know himself. It's a it's a interesting concept. God knows you better than you know yourself. Just by him knowing himself. I'm going to say that again. God knows you better than you know you just by him knowing himself, which suggests or asserts that we are a intimate part of himself. And the, the reason why this is important to know and important to believe is because it's important to know how relevant we are to God. Or a, per, or, or a part of him and how relevant um, how aware of uh, he is of us it's important to think about that from time to time at least daily at least for a few minutes now to, to understand this concept take a look on 539 I, I absolutely love this line can I ask a question yes please so would you say that it go it if it, it really just goes both ways we are dependent on him and without us i mean he needs us too right he doesn't need you to exist he 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 would be, he's the only true independence okay okay um he needs Thanks. you to fulfill his purpose of why he created existence that's what i meant that he needs us to do 
Yes. With the angels. So in that, in that sense, yes. In, yeah. a, in other okay. words, in order, God chose to need us to bring his presence down here. Got it. Thank but in you. order to just, yeah, 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 of course. But in other words, in order to make his existence meaningful, he needs us. But in order for him to simply exist, he doesn't need us. Um, we need him. So we're a part of him. We're a dependent part of him. By him knowing himself, he knows, um, he knows us intimately. And take a look on 539. I absolutely love this line. Five minute warning, by the way. <laughs> I got to go in five minutes. I'm, I'm sorry to, I appreciate everybody being able to make it early. Um, the third bold paragraph, it's the center of the page where it says, and in order for us, in order for us to understand all of this as much as possible with our mortal mind, the Kabbalists have already discussed it at length in their words. So there's tons of Kabbalistic works, writings, and teachings that will elaborate on this concept to make it make sense. But take a look at the next paragraph. And this, I, I absolutely love this, but all of this is essentially unnecessary. Since all of Israel are believers, the children of believers, without any prior investigation via human intellect. And we say you were alone before the world was created. You, God, are alone since the world has been created, as mentioned above in chapter 20. So the, the author is essentially saying, I could explain this to you. And you could find various explanations to justify how, um, how God conceptualizes us, how God is aware of us. It's irrelevant. <laughs> As Jews, we have deeply ingrained in our souls the faith that we are essentially relevant to God and that he's aware of us. And connecting to that faith, being more sensitive to that faith is so important and it's so doable, so reachable. And I, I, we have three minutes. I'd like to conclude with two stories. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, who was known as the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, lived in communist Russia and, um, and, and was, was actually very, uh, suffered a lot of oppression from the communists. Um, they, he was on the, he actually was um, sentenced to death. The sentence was miraculously reversed and it was a whole miracle story. He had an encounter with um, one of the KGB people and they had some sort of argument about faith. And he says, faith is not for me. And Rabbi Schneerson says, faith is for you. He says, Rabbi, faith is not for me. He says, faith is for you. He says, no, it's a personality thing. I just don't believe. <laughs> he says, yes, you do. He says, who gave birth to you? He says, my parents, what do you mean? Oh, you remember it? No. <laughs> well, how do you know your parents gave birth to you? Because they told me. Oh, well, you believe. <laughs> you believe what they told you? <laughs> he does believe, right? Now, there's certain areas in life where belief and faith is inconvenient. And there's certain areas where the eights are higher, the evil inclination makes it more difficult. But I'll tell you another story, story number two. There was a great rabbi in the um, late 1800s named Rabbi Moshe Sofer. He was the chief rabbi of Pressburg, of the Jewish community in Pressburg. Rabbi Moshe Sofer had a son, Rabbi Shimon. And his son Shimon was a, 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 um, a 
was an up-and-coming scholar, as his father was. And he had a very big question, an existential question, and he couldn't get to the bottom of it, and it was disturbing his faith. And he says, Father, what's the answer? He says, I don't know. And he was disturbed for days and days. As nobody knew the answer. Even his father didn't know the answer. Three days later, when the son finally calmed down, his father answered the question. It was such a good answer that it made the question irrelevant. You know, there's certain questions that justify, certain answers that justify the questions, certain answers negate the question. He negated, totally negated the question. He says, Father, that's such a good answer. Why didn't you tell me that in the beginning? He says, son, you need to know that just because you don't have the answer doesn't mean you can't believe. Faith is not dependent on answers. Okay, it's 7.44, and I, I apologize to rush out of here like this. Um, I hope to see you guys tomorrow um, if you're able to make it. Uh, Look at and, uh, How long well, will you be in this hearing? To... Um, I, I actually don't know. <laughs> I'm okay. hoping not too long. Right. Um, be well, everybody. I'm sorry <laughs> to have to, to, to bounce out of here like this. But... No, you Mark, don't. Rabbi. Okay.